Welcome to Stuck In My Mind Podcast, the show where we dive into the mind of a regular guy on his road to self-discovery. You'll hear everyday people just like you share the latest topics, personal stories, and things they've learned along the way. And now, please welcome your host, Wise. It's your boy, W-I-Z-E, and today's show is sponsored by Bergen Basin Realty. If you're looking to sell anywhere in the New York City area, definitely check them out. Bergen Basin Realty has been providing professional real estate services in the Brooklyn area for over 40 years. They have an impeccable reputation built on honesty, integrity, and service. Bergen Basin Realty's influences stretches far beyond Bergen Beach. Their comprehensive network of referral systems, professional affiliations, and solid internet marketing strategies consistently drive traffic to all their listings. So check out their website at www.bergenbasin.com. Give them a call at 718-763-4110 or send them an email at bergenbasin at AOL.com and let them know that your boy Y sent you. Peace out. And welcome to another episode I have a very special guest on today. He's done so many things in his life. I just, I don't even know where to start. He's an author. He's a writer. He's written books on poker. He's written for, for Married with Children, Charles in Charge. This man has been everywhere. Welcome to the show, John Vorhaus. Thank you, Wise. It's great to be here. Happy to be sharing some time with you. Oh, man. It's like, you've, you've done a lot of things, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, do you want to know right up top what the secret of my success is? I can give it to you in four words. I didn't know this was my operating system, but I figured it out along the way. Don't fear bad outcomes. If you don't fear bad outcomes, anything is possible. Because uh, I look back on my history and I see that a lot of the times that I made progress were times when I took a shot, reached out to somebody, put myself forward as a, um, a candidate a job prospect, a volunteer, or someone who could, who could do the work. Whether I thought I could do the work or not, I put myself out there that way because I figured the worst that could happen is it wouldn't go completely great and I'd learn something along the way. But that, that it's not fearlessness because fearlessness ex- exists in the face of adverse consequences. It's more a matter of realizing that in most circumstances, the things we think are adverse consequences and the things that stop us from making progress don't really exist in the way we think of them. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, it's it's just for me when I've when I shifted my mind the way I I was thinking and 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 stopped being afraid of because I had been wanting to do a podcast for over a year and I and my I made up excuses in my head every excuse or oh, I sound horrible who would want to listen to me why would I want to do this and it took me to really step out of my comfort zone, face the fear and not be afraid to fail. Cause that's what it was. I, my, my thing was, it was just, I didn't want to fail, but I had already failed because I didn't put the, I didn't try. So I just, I just said, you know what? Screw it. Hit record. And it, and it was like just a tidal wave of, of just 
of creativity just started flowing and I just started doing so many different things that I'm like, oh man, I should have done this a long time ago. But that's what it is. We, we, we get afraid and we don't know what to do. There's a book called um, The Artist's Way, and the author makes the point that people are afraid of undertaking art because they think they're not going to be any good at it, because before they start, they really aren't very good at it. But she says the logic of that is like saying, I better not try to learn French because I don't know French. You already don't know French. Why should you be afraid of not doing French well? And everybody can see the logic of that. Of course, I don't know the vocabulary. I don't know the grammar. If I want to learn it, I have to accept that my learning curve will be steep. And my progress will be awkward at the start. We get that with academic subjects. But when we look at ourselves through our artistic or creative lens, then we're primarily looking through a fear lens. And that's when we start to see things, um, get arguments in our head that don't really make sense, but they're very persuasive and very powerful. In my book, The Comic Toolbox, I describe this force as the fraud police, the sense that if I'm in a writer's room or if I'm teaching a class or any place that I'm putting myself on the line creatively, I'm afraid that the door is going to burst open and the fraud police are going to come charging in, armed and dangerous, and saying, uh, come quietly now, Mr. Vorhaus. If you just leave quietly, no one will get hurt. Now, obviously, that, that's a, a construct in my mind. It's not reality. It's not going to happen. But if that concern is large enough and powerful enough in my mind, it'll freeze me to inactivity. So I try to um, dismiss the fraud police from my thinking wherever I can. I have to tell you, I presented this material once overseas for a group of people who didn't speak English all that well. And after class, somebody came up to me and said, these frog police of which you speak, what are the frog police? And I said, it has nothing to do with frogs. That's just a translation error. It, and it, it's cool because I see you've done so many different things, man. Like, especially, how do you go and and become on the writing staff on the Russian version of Married with Children? That's a great question, isn't it? Uh, as you know from my CV, and as I will now tell your listeners, I wrote for the original Married with Children back in the 1980s, just briefly. Uh, I had a sitcom career that spanned um, about a decade or so. But along the way, I was developing my teaching chops. And I wrote a book called The Comic Toolbox, How to Be Funny Even If You're Not. And that book has found its way to all corners of the world, including it found its way to the desk of the vice president of Sony Pictures International. At a time when I was working in Romania, I reached out to him because I don't fear failure. And I said, uh, you, if you have any opportunities for me, I'd love to uh, you know, put my hat in the ring. And he'd read The Comic Toolbox. He knew that I was qualified to do what I wanted to do. So he assigned me to the Russian version of Married with Children. And I spent two winters in Moscow running the writing staff of that show. What's interesting about it is in the American version of Married with Children, it took 13 years to spin out all the seasons, all the episodes, 22 or 23 a year, something like that. But the Russians had a different model. They were producing two episodes every two weeks and airing them two or three times a week. So they burned through all 13 seasons of Married with Children adapting the episodes one by one. And then they ran out. They didn't have any more episodes to do, so they started writing new ones. And that's when Sony brought me in to help them develop new stories and scripts for the uh, Russian versions of the, the uh, Married with Children characters. Who, by the way, I've traveled all over the world, and every time I tell somebody that I write for Married with Children, no matter what country I'm in, everybody says, oh, he's that Al Bundy. He's just like us. So there really is something universal about this bitter loser character that other people in other countries can easily relate to. Oh yeah. I, it was growing up. It was one of my favorite shows. Um, 
and 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 it's just Al was just <laughs> just the way him the chemistry between him and, and Peg was just crazy and and it, it seems like and that's not how like I look I'm, I look at my marriage now and and it's nothing like there <laughs> oh, thank God but it, it was funny the, the dynamics of Al coming home from work waiting well not really expecting a home cooked meal he already knew what he had home. <laughs> But it was just—it was just crazy. It was funny. Well, hope, hoping, for, hoping for the best and expecting the worst, and never being disappointed because his expectations were always met. Yeah. But here's what's interesting about that: you have a family and married with children who are completely dysfunctional. We get that. But the seductive promise of television, especially situation comedy, is: look at this picture of your reality. Okay, we know it's not your reality because we've exaggerated it for comic effect. We've exaggerated it to make it funny. But now look at this family and ask yourself one question. If they are ex- surviving this exaggerated catastrophe with their limited coping skills, what problems do you have that you can't manage? And I think that's really what a show like Married with Children does for us. It holds up a funhouse mirror to our own reality. And it basically says, if these jokers can cope with that, you can easily cope with what you have going on. And I think people find that to be a very seductive and inviting message and that's why it works so well oh, yeah, yeah. Well, i developed a television show and I, I worked on a project i would say in norway and it was uh, the story of a teenage girl and her alcoholic mother and her alcoholic mother was a piece of work i mean she was the most embarrassing humiliating mortifying bad mother that any girl could have so you have the story of a teenage girl dealing with all teenage anxieties on top of which, she has the world's worst mother, like her, her worst enemy and her worst nightmare are right there under her roof. And I, I think that for teenage girls dealing with their own mothers, who might be quite normal mothers, but still you're a teenager and you're dealing with your parents, it's always a challenging. I think it's really gratifying that you can look at somebody else's relationship and say, well, those people, they've got it a lot worse than I have. And if they can manage, I guess I can too. And we see that over and over again. Yeah, definitely. I found this very interesting too. You did two social action TV dramas in Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. Uh, another sort of serendipitous story. Again, kind of goes back to the comic toolbox. I was working in Los Angeles and also traveling and, and teaching writers overseas. And uh, a woman from Nicaragua came to the U.S. to study comedy writing sitcom at the American Film Institute. But the class that she intended to take had been canceled. So the American Film Institute asked uh, me if I would, um, you know, step in and just help her one-on-one. And it didn't take more than a meeting for me to realize that there was a possibility for me to do a lot of powerful good in Nicaragua if I was willing to wade into the project and, and be a part of it. Because this wasn't a normal television situation. It wasn't a network or a production company. It was a social action group, um, a nonprofit organization with a very strong leftist, feminist uh, uh, championing of young people, anti, um, anti-violence, anti-sexism, uh, racism, homophobia, very, very strong social agenda. And they wanted to do a show that, as I later described it, would teach the young people of Nicaragua to think for themselves and practice safe sex. And it was really, really powerful and successful social modeling, not just in Nicaragua, but throughout South and Central America, such that we ended up making another program. But all along the way, I realized that considering the 
the urgent needs in the country and the lack of skills for telling stories in the country, the only way my part of the project was going to work was if I really committed to it in a way that I hadn't previously committed to um, greater good kind of projects. And it taught me a lot about how uh, an engagement can be satisfying to me because it exists at the intersection of my passion and purpose. And this is the part that I'd like to share. If I'd gone to Nicaragua to build houses, that might have been serving a purpose, building houses, serving the people of Nicaragua. But it wouldn't be engaging my passion because I have no passion for building houses. I'm very bad at carpentry. But I do have a passion for writing, and I have a very strong passion for teaching writers. So for me to go to Nicaragua and invest my skills and my energy in a project that exists right at the intersection of my passion and purpose, my desire to help writers and my desire to be a force for social good, that made the experience really easy and fun and harmonious for me. And so for anybody who's listening and, and is wondering, how can I align my creative energies so they really serve me? I can't if I'm recording. Sorry about that. So they really serve. No worries. No worries. It's the pandemic. It's the post-pandemic. Um, anyway, if I'm looking for a way to really uh, energize my creative practice and align it so that it will operate effectively, I just look for the intersection of passion and purpose. And every time I find those two things, something I want to contribute to, plus skills that I enjoy using, um, that's a powerful math. That will take you far. That's awesome. I, like, yeah, it's like I said earlier, you, you've done a lot of interesting things, man. That's like, wow. <laughs> but one, one thing that interests me is, how many poker books did you write? <laughs> uh, only 10 or 11. It sort of depends how you count. Because I've got one book on strip poker that's really not a book. It's more just a deck of cards with a pamphlet. <laughs> Sexy deck of cards, though. I've written, yeah, easily 10 books on poker, a bunch of how-to books, and several novels, and then some novelty projects like that strip poker kit. Uh, it, this is kind of another easily extracted lesson, if I may. When poker got hot in the early 2000s, I was writing different kinds of things, teaching and training, always looking for exciting opportunities. And when poker really started to take off, I went to my agent and I said, you know, I'm already writing for poker magazines at this point. I think I could sell a book in this market. And he said something I'll never forget. And it really changed my life forever. He said, I don't think I can sell one book, but I know I can sell three and I said, what do you mean? He said, I have a publisher who will buy a series of books for you. Your killer poker brand, it's established. And they'll be happy to roll out at least three books in the series. And I said to him, well, that's all well and good, but I don't have three books worth of poker to talk about. He said, sure you do. You just don't know it yet. And he was absolutely right. Because once I signed the contract to deliver three book length manuscripts every six months, it just put my feet to the fire. I had to study the game that much more deeply. I had to figure out new ways of talking about new topics. And I just had to have the discipline of being a day in and day out writer in a way that I hadn't experienced before. So I was engaging in projects that were going to take me six months to a year to execute. And I wasn't sure I could do it. I had some fear, some anxiety. And I realized that's just part of the practice. Everybody's got those fears every time we try to do something we haven't done before. But I burned through those three books and they liked them so much and the market was so hot that they bought another three books. So it turns out I had six books in the Killer Poker series 
by the time all was said and done and never ran out of things to say. What I didn't realize was even as I was learning about poker and teaching poker, the game was changing. So things that I wrote in 2002 had been completely transformed by 2006 or 2007 and needed rethinking and readdressing because it's just in the nature of poker. The game is constantly uh, changing as players adjust, develop new strategies and develop adjustments to the strategies, adjust off the adjustments and so on and so forth. So, yeah, that was uh, that was a real uh, revenue driver for me all through the early 2000s. I could count on those books to be uh, to generate. Yeah. Uh, uh, a, a living in advances for a bunch, a bunch of years. And then it was just put my nose to the grindstone and do the work, which is all I wanted to do anyhow. So, all right. I also see that you also, you're, you're also very into um, charity events, stuff like that. You, you, you did um, create a hundred self portraits in a hundred days for doctors without borders. Mm-hmm. Well, this was a pandemic project. I'm sure. Uh, well, your podcast was a pandemic project, wasn't it? Yes, or was it? Was. It? it was. It started during the pandemic. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. What happened with the pandemic? And everybody who's listening can relate to this. I'm sure in a in a uh, in a direct way. As a as a group, I'm speaking now of creative practitioners, people who have a desire to be creative. As a group, we were shell shocked. We were confronted with world events that we had no control over. And we felt a deep upwelling of need to answer back. We had to speak creatively to this thing that we couldn't control because our creative response was the only thing that we could control. And it's not just me, everybody, not just you, everybody had the same urge. I have to answer COVID-19. Early in the pandemic, I did a series of writing workshops that involved writing a comic letter to COVID-19, a 500-word letter intended to be funny, but mostly just intended to give writers a chance to address their feelings about COVID-19 and, uh, and the pandemic and the changes that it was requiring of them. There's a saying in writing, the truth is revealed under pressure. That's kind of a secret of storytelling. But in real life, we were all under pressure that we'd never, ever encountered before. And it confronted us and required that we discover new truths about ourselves. Now, for myself at that time, I was very close to calling myself an artist. I wasn't yet calling myself an artist. I was calling myself a wannabe artist or a practitioner. I had only been doing art for a few years and hadn't quite gotten over the hurdle of of allowing myself to define myself as someone who has visual capability, artistic capability. Been a writer all my life, been an artist for 10 minutes, scared as usual. But the pandemic is here and it requires a response from me. So I said to myself, I'm going to take on the following challenge. I'm going to do 100 self-portraits in 100 days and post them every day on Facebook and do it as a fundraiser for Doctors Without Borders. Now, I, I dealt in a lot of self-protection in this task. Making it a fundraiser protected my ego from anybody saying, why are you wasting your time doing this? Your efforts aren't very good. We don't like you. This, none of this happened, but it was in my mind. It's a common fear. But doing it as a fundraiser for a charity gave me a rationale. I could say to the world, like my art or don't like my art, you can't dislike my intention. So if you think my intention is good, whether you like my art or not, you can still support my intention 
by supporting Doctors Without Borders. So I use Doctors Without Borders to give a social framework to my work, but mostly to set myself up for success. Because in this sense of it's, it's a charity, it's for a good cause, that gave me a lot more freedom to create. And I told you I protected myself in several ways. The other way I protected myself might seem counterintuitive, but I made this a daily project. I made it, I have to turn in work every single day, which means nothing that I work on can linger too long, which means that I can't be too precious about the choices I'm making. I have to make choices fast. I have to execute on them fast. Then I have to stand by the choices that I've made, throw them out there to the public and see what happens with them. That pressure of producing every day completely set me free from any concerns I might have about, is this good enough? Is that good enough? There wasn't so much time to worry about good enough. The requirement was a new self-portrait today and go. And by the way, I chose to do self-portraits not because I'm massively narcissistic, although I am, but also because I knew that I could count on myself to be a reliable model and subject for my work. I'd never say no to me to pose one more time. So that's all the thinking behind that project. Hugely successful in the sense that I raised some money for Doctors Without Borders, but in the deeper sense, I'm now an artist. I know I am. I have artistic achievement. I've won um, attaboys, I won't say prizes, <laughs> enthusiastic responses for a lot of my work. And, and, um, and I've gotten into some gallery shows with those hundred heads or with different ones of them, because obviously some are stronger than others. But I came through the experience and came out of it saying, not only was that creatively rewarding, it was a real step up in my practice. And that's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm always looking for for myself. And I'm always trying to help other creative people, writers or artists achieve, which is a step up in your practice. We, we get hung up thinking about the end result. I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be a made guy. I'm going to change the world. All of that stuff kind of takes us away from the main thing, which is just growing our craft, focusing our practice, trying to get better at the things that we want to get good at. That's kind of been my message in all of my how-to books, and it continues to be the message in the work I'm, book I'm working on now, which is called The Little Book of Stand-Up. It's going to be a small, practice-driven book on uh, stand-up comedy. So, yeah. I gave you a lot of answer there. <laughs> well, for, like, like for me, I've added so many different titles in the last year. Just from starting my podcast, I've added editor, I've added producer, I've added CEO. It's just, and it's just so many different things just from the podcast, just from me stepping, like again, stepping out of my comfort zone and doing something that I had been been procrastinating you invented procrastination i'm saying procrastination because that's what i was doing was procrastinating and and making up excuses but but again once i started it's like creative juices started flowing so many different ideas hey i can do this i can do that i'm about to launch a radio station which has been in the work for the last year but i i, I wasn't i'm me i, I didn't want to release it until like i did a soft launch in january where we just played music but my my whole idea was so to create to have original content on there or have podcasters come on and release their shows on there as well and create uh have platforms for musicians and artists to come on and, and perform their music and even stand up comedy have have co comedians come on and do a 30 minute set and play it out live on the station cuz i just wanted to give 
creatives another content, especially now with, especially for podcasters now with uh, Apple and all these all these um, platforms going to subscription method. Who knows what what kind of things, what kind of regulations they're gonna have, what kind of what kind of standards they're gonna have, so people might be censored in a way. So I just felt that maybe by me doing this, I can give people an outlet without being censored. Like if you release something on YouTube and they don't approve it, they'll take it down. Hmm. Well, um, there's a place in the world for uncensored content. God knows. Uh, in a lot of places in the world where uncensored content is not possible, equally true. So uh, I don't know if we can say that this is a, a, f- a representation of the force, bet- the battle between good and evil, maybe between order and chaos. But uh, I was writing about this just the other day. So I'm a stand-up comic. I'm a recreational stand-up comic, but I'm writing to stand-up comics and trying to share my understanding of what this practice is like. And one of the key questions that confronts comics these days is, what do I do about political correctness? What do I do about punching down, bullying, body shaming? Where is my voice allowed to be in a social landscape that's changing so quickly that I don't know where I am anymore? And this is of no small consideration to me because I'm a 65-year-old white guy standing on a mountain of privilege, and I'm aware of it in ways that I wasn't aware of it it before. But it's not really problem-solving to say to a stand-up comic or somebody who wants to speak to the human condition. It doesn't really solve their problem to say, be considerate or or watch what you say or think about your impact. Those are all strategies for dealing with the situation, but they don't really get to the heart of it. Here's the heart of it. As creators, we're either one of two things. We're either builder-uppers or kicker-downers. We either build things up or we kick them down. And in a creative process, both voices are necessary. We need people in their words and their art to say to the world, the world is a great place, aspire to more, cherish beauty, rise up. But we also need iconoclasts. We need critics. We need angry voices. We need people whose job it is to cast down the idols, to break things. So there is a place in creative practice for knocker downers. All that's really required of an individual, of a creator, is to ask the simple question, which am I? Am I a builder upper or am I a knocker downer? Recognizing that both choices are valid, but once you've made the choice and you know where you stand, then suddenly you no longer have any questions about what's appropriate to your brand, what's appropriate to your voice, because you know what your goal is, broadly speaking, to lift up or to knock down. When you have that piece of information, then the whole political correctness space gets much easier to, uh, to deal with. For myself, I know I'm never entering that space except with a desire to contribute, to lift up. So I can look at material that I'm writing and I can ask myself, is this joke going to work the way I want it to? Is it going to be interpreted as uh, a call to collective action or is it going to be interpreted as a a criticism or a a negative? If it's the former, it belongs in my act. If it's the latter, it's never going to be there and I don't have to worry about it. So that's the kind of thing I'm always looking for in my work. Controlling ideas that fix a lot of small problems. Yeah, that, that's, that's one. That's cool. That's good, man. That's definitely that, that. That's definitely something I like to. I like to have people on to, who who are about creating positive content and who who are, who are looking to help people. And that's why when I first started, it was all about ranting and and raving about 
politics and my job and all that. And I was not happy doing that. I was not happy. It wasn't until I got to speak to people and interview people and hear their stories and hear what they've overcome or what they've done to, to improve in their life. That's where I really started having more fun in my podcast. That's where I was like, this is what I want. This is how I wanted to do it. And and since then, I've just that's all I've been doing is just speaking to amazing people like yourself and being able to prick your brain and talk to you and learn and and just have some great conversations because that's what I felt that I needed to put out there, just positive content, just nothing but positivity. Where someone, if someone hears my episode and, and it helped them out in some way, I feel like I did what I was supposed to do. If I can can claim the same intention, I'm specifically interested in helping people like this, people who want to have a creative practice, but don't yet have the momentum to get over that first hurdle, to get from not writing to writing, to get from not making art to making art, from not podcasting to podcasting. The first step is the hardest. It, in retrospect, it'll turn out to be a very small step. You look back and you'll say, why did that ever stop me? It was really pretty simple once I got rolling. But getting that, kicking the motivation and, and learning how to manage the relationship between fear and expectation, you kind of have to go through these things before you can even start your practice. Otherwise, you're so uh, burdened by how awful it's going to be for so long that you just never do anything at all. And my heart goes out to those people in particular, people like yourself in the before times who wanted a practice, wanted to be out there contributing to the greater good, but hadn't quite, it's not a question, hadn't found your voice, hadn't yet owned your voice. Once we take ownership of our creative voice, then the fear goes down, it doesn't go away, but we have another weapon against it. Because then we can say to ourselves in our inner dialogue, Look, fear, I know you're there, but I'm serving a higher purpose now. I'm making my voice heard because I want to communicate X or Y ideas to people. And that need is so great that I can't let even you, my biggest fears, stop me. So motivation, desire, intention, those become weapons that we use in our constant war against fear, doubt, and insecurity. And then we just go to war day in and day out. Yeah, definitely like that. I definitely like that. I I go to war every day, man. I I attack this like there is no tomorrow, and that's and that's how that's that's how I feel. That's why I've improved and why my show's numbers have gone up. It's because I'm being consistent because I'm putting out shows regularly. I and when I first started, I left my first episode, which was five minutes and wasn't the greatest quality, but I left it on there so that people can see my growth from episode one to hmm. whatever episode I'm up to now, which is like 97, 98. And, you know, no, sorry. No, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I did, I, I, what I admire about that is, is you put the first work up there and you left it up there and you stood behind it. When I first started doing art, I started art at the age of 60 and in, in the, in the rubble of my broken writing career. I was just at a point in my life where, Writing wasn't working for me, so I needed something new, and I turned to art. And of course, being a writer, I immediately turned around and wrote a book on it called A White Belt in Art, chronicling my first year 
in artistic experience. And part of the book includes the work that I did in that first year. And man, it looks like an artist's first works and not in a pretty way often. I'm, I'm, I look at those now and I say, you must have had some kind of balls to put these bad drawings and bad uh, artistic renderings into a book. What were you thinking? And the answer is, I was thinking to record my journey so that somebody else could come along behind me and say, well, if this joker can do this art and then teach from it effectively, because here I am learning from it, then I guess if he's telling me that I can do it too, maybe I can do it too. And once again, I've liberated somebody from their fear of executing on their art just by being willing to showcase mine, warts and all. I do a similar thing when I'm teaching comedy writing classes. When I'm teaching comedy, there's a tremendous amount of insecurity because these are people who want to be funny. They're not sure they're funny. They know people are going to be judging them. There's a lot of failure vibe in the room. So pretty early on in my presentations, I make a mistake on purpose. I tell a joke that doesn't work or I flub a line or something that's, that's manifestly a mistake. And then I say to the audience, I just made this mistake. And I made it on purpose. Let me tell you why. Because I'm the teacher. I'm the expert. And I'm supposed to be perfect, right? But here I am making mistakes. I'm showcasing mistakes. I'm modeling failure. And if you think about your reaction, audience, you'll see at this moment, you don't hate me. You actually like me more because I'm willing to own my mistakes. I'm willing to own failure. So if the guy who's teaching the class is willing to own failure, what does that say about the people taking the class, that they have complete freedom to own failure because the authority in the room has already acknowledged that failure is part of the process and failure is not to be shunned, but to embrace, to be embraced. And at this point, I always usually add, if you must fail and you will fail, fail big because it will have been a failure, but it might be a spectacular one. And there's always value in doing spectacular things. You're absolutely right, man. Um, so, John, let them know where they can find you at. What's your websites? Where you can plug away? Let them know if uh, what if what social media, anything, anything. Just plug away. Let them know where they can find you. All right. Okay. Here we go. The key to the Vorhaus Empire begins with the correct spelling of my surname. My full name is John Vorhaus. J O H N V O R H A U S. When you have those words. You can find your way to johnvorehouse.com, where you can find a great number of my books, uh, electronic versions and print versions for sale. I, I can do signed first editions and send them out in the mail, but also there are PDFs for download at a reasonable price. When you have my name, John Vorehouse, you also have all you need to get to my Amazon author page. Just go to Amazon and type in John Vorehouse in books, and then you're going to find it all. All the books that I carry, all the books that Amazon carries. All the books from all of my publishers can be found on Amazon.com. I don't get the same cut that I get when you buy them from my website directly, but not all of my books are available through my website directly. So between those two resources, my website and Amazon, you can find everything you need. If you are a fan of audiobooks, I just want to mention that after 10 years, I finally retrieved the rights to four of my author-narrated audiobooks. These are books that I recorded about 10 years ago 
and for one reason or another, haven't been in the marketplace. The best of the best is a little book called The Little Book of Sitcom. If you're interested in writing situation comedy, you get the author-narrated version of this work in your ear. That's going to be a lot of fun for you, I'm told, with all due false modesty, that that's a really good listen because it's author-narrated, and I seem to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the other gem among there is my novel, Lucy in the Sky. This is a hippie novel set in Milwaukee in hippie times, and it's great for author-narrated audio for the following reason. The climax of the book is an extended acid trip. And if you don't have direct experience of that as a narrator, I don't think you can read the prose or narrate it with the right kind of intensity and craziness that it demands. But because of my life experiences and my work as an author and a practitioner and a creative explorer, I have all the authority I need to narrate that portion of the book with the excitement and the, let's say, the displaced reality that it demands. So that one more thing. Uh, in my artistic practice, I have put a lot of my images on redbubble.com, and there you can get JV art on mugs and T-shirts and, and um, backdrops and shower curtains and it got everything you can think of. So if you go to redbubble.com and search again for my name, John Vorhaus, that'll take you to my Redbubble shop where you can get just stunningly colorful images and some funny ones and some real mind scrapers that'll look great on t-shirts. You'll walk around and people will look at you and they'll say, where did you get that wacky piece of business? And you'll say, I know, right? And that'll be the end of that conversation. And that's the end of my plug. <laughs> All right. Oh, done. sorry. Sorry. It's not complete. No, sorry. It's not completely the end. There's one more thing I have to mention. I am in service to new writers, new creative people of all kinds. Guys, if you got a question that you think I can help you with, reach out to me directly. Go to my website, send me an email, send me from the contact link on my website. I'm always interested in hearing people from people who I can help. So, and that's for real. So that's just generosity of spirit right there. Thank you. And that's the end of my spiel. <laughs> Thank you, John. I appreciate you being on, man. But now it's time for shout outs. Big shout out to my man, Steve Joyner, for definitely setting up another great interview. I appreciate you, brother. Big shout out to my real wise family, King Sage, Poppy J, Brandy J. Big shout out to my homie Chrissy Richards from Cypher Knowledge with Chrissy. Big shout out to the boss lady, Fina. I love you, baby. And as always, a big, big shout out to all the essential workers out there. God bless you. Be safe. Your boy Wise is out. Peace out. Thanks for listening. Listen on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and TuneIn. Find us on social media on Twitter at wise underscore B underscore blunt, Instagram at wise underscore B underscore blunt, and a Facebook fan page, www.facebook slash stuck in my mind. Check back soon for new episodes. Until next time, peace out.